Okay, why don't we go to God in prayer as uh, we commit ourselves to Him that we'll be good listeners and uh, obedient to His Word and pray that uh, I will be obedient to preaching it faithfully. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to thank you for your Word, that you've not uh, kept yourself silent, but you continue to speak to us through your Word and through the Holy Spirit in us, helping us to understand and to obey your Word. And we just pray that uh, all of us here, including myself, will truly be faithful to you and have a right relationship with you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now some of you uh, may have heard this story before, so if you find it a bit boring, uh, hopefully you won't. But uh, you know that uh, I, uh, I like dogs and uh, I have a dog at home. And the last time I went to the SPCA, before I picked up my current dog, I went there. Before I went through the front door of the SPCA, this woman came up to me and she practically thrust this small, black, scrawny dog into my hands and she said, you must take this dog, right? Uh, because if you don't take this dog, this dog will die. And I'm like, why? She says, oh, you know, because it's black. And for Chinese, black is uh, it's an unlucky color and, you know, it's not a very attractive dog. So if I put it into the pound, they will definitely put it down. So I'm looking at this scrawny black dog. And she says, no, you please, no, long, no, please take this dog. And she gave me her phone number. If you have any problems after a week, give me a call. And then she drove off. Right? So I took the dog, went home, and uh, we, we looked after the dog, and the, the dog was really, really troublesome. Every night, he would whine and cry so that no one could sleep, and I would have to go downstairs and get this thin mattress and sleep on the floor, and uh, next to the dog, and I'd wake up in the morning, and the dog had peed on me. Right? <laughs> so then, next day, we tried to feed the dog, he would be running away from us, and then we try to pet him and he'd go in the corner. Then when we go to the corner to try to pet him, he'll bare his teeth at us and start growling like that to us, right? And then when it started raining, instead of staying in the corner, he ran into the rain and was shivering in the rain. So my wife had to bring an umbrella and cover him with the umbrella in the rain. But throughout all this time, he never showed us any love or affection, right? So it got to the stage where my, we were trying to choose a name for it because we don't know what the dog's name was. And my kids said, let's call it Vader. After Darth Vader. Right? Because he was really unlovable and rebellious. Now, I think that uh, when, uh, when we look at this relationship where we were trying to pour out all our and shower love on this dog, this dog just kept reciprocating, or Vader kept reciprocating with uh, rebellion, distrust, and coldness. And I think that characterizes the relationship that uh, Israel, God's people, was showing to God at this time. Because uh, as we look at chapter 10, uh, basically we're back to... Uh, 10,050 BC, and uh, it was a new political order in Israel where they were moving from the political system of the judges to the time of the kings. But as we saw in chapter 8, the, the request for a king by God's people, the, 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 actually a demand for a king by God's people, was actually a sin. It was ungodly. It was a rejection of God. They asked for the wrong motive. So remember, they wanted a king uh, to replace God as their savior and their protector. And they wanted the wrong type of king. They wanted a king like the nations, not a king serving under God, but a king to be God over them like the nations. And uh, by asking that, they were actually essentially committing idolatry. And that's where we find ourselves today in verse 17. Because if you look at me in verse 17, I hope you all have your Bibles with me. It was you, sorry. Uh, we actually see in verse 17 a public coronation ceremony or a public crowning ceremony. And it begins like this in verse 17, right? So Samuel summons the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to them, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses and you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. Now, I'm not sure whether uh, many of you have actually seen a coronation ceremony or what is it, a crowning ceremony or a appointing of a king. The only uh, similar thing I can think of is like in England, uh, in the United Kingdom, where they appoint a king. And usually, uh, as far as I think I can remember, it's a happy occasion, it's a very grand and auspicious and positive occasion. And there, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which nominally represents the head of the Anglican Church, will come and he will say things like, you know, uh, so good to see all of you here today for this happy and joyous occasion, blah, 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 right? Now imagine if the Archbishop of Canterbury came up there in front of public television of the whole nation and he said to all the people, having a king is a stupid idea and you are all stupid because you all want a king, right? Now, that would be very shocking and scandalous and outrageous. But that's exactly what the prophet Samuel does here, isn't it? He calls the people together for a coronation ceremony and instead of telling them what a wonderful occasion this is, he tells them that it's a really bad thing that they're doing. He rebukes them. And it's not because he's a grumpy old man, but because he's the mouthpiece of God. Right? Remember right from the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, we know that he's the mouthpiece of God. And as we look at this, he reminds them at this coronation ceremony that the demand for a king is actually a rejection of the God who had brought them out of Egypt and who had delivered them from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that had oppressed them and had saved them out of all the calamities and distresses. So Samuel, uh, and God speaking through Samuel, makes very clear that the demand for a king was sinful. It was not a bad idea or a dubious decision, or neither here nor there. It was sin. It was wickedness, pure and simple. It was treating God uh, by turning or biting the hand that that fed them, and, and basically rejecting God and turning to idolatry a king. But what would God do? Uh, in light of their rejection and rebellion of him. Well, in verse 20, we read that Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan, or Matri's clan was chosen, and finally son, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes. He has hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and brought him up, and he stood taller, sorry, among the people, a head taller than any others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the, the people shouted, long live the king. Now, in the uh, version of uh, the Bible, I have the translation, the NIV. It says that, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Uh, For those of you who are using your ESV translations, basically it says that it was chosen by lot, by lottery. And that's basically what was happening here, right? So basically, uh, if you look up on the map, okay, the map's up here. Okay, so the 12 tribes, uh, all the people came, and uh, they all uh, came to Mizpah, right? Okay, which Mizpah, which is up there. Oh, where is it? There, Mizpah. And they all had this big gathering, all the representatives, all the different tribes. And basically they had this big lottery happening. 
and they were chosen by Lot. The Lot landed on the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is the smallest tribe of Israel. You see the small purple area, very small tribe. And out of that tribe, Matri's clan was chosen. And out of Matri's clan, Saul was chosen. Now, if we read about uh, this incident for the very first time, if we just come straight to chapter 10, we would think that this happened by chance. Because by definition, a lottery operates by chance, right? It's the same as when you uh, buy a lottery in Singapore. It's supposed to happen by chance. But when we read the Bible in its context, which is the way we're meant to understand it, meant to read it, right? that's why we, we preach the whole Bible book by book, we know that this is not chance. Because we know that there's already been a private coronation process. Do you remember in the, in the chapters before, chapter 8 and 9, it was Saul who was already chosen. And how was Saul chosen? By this supernatural, miraculous process where he was looking for the donkeys. Remember the wild donkey chase? Right? He, was, he was looking for his donkeys and Saul was going on the preaching, judging circuit and they met together. And as a result, God had already prepared Samuel and said, Saul, this guy is going to be king. So when we see the public anointing of Saul through a lottery process, we know that actually God is doing a very great and miraculous work again. Because he is, he is working through this lottery process to bring Saul to be publicly crowned in front of the nation. Now, if last week uh, the... Uh, the private coronation of Saul was a miracle, then here is another big miracle. Right? I imagine if each of us uh, bought a lottery ticket, which is against Christian principles, so you shouldn't, but imagine if we did, right? How, how, what are the odds that any, any one of us would win the grand prize? Very, very low, isn't it? I know statistically, it is easier for you to be struck by lightning than to win the, the, the first prize of a lottery. Do you know that? Okay, so that's why it's also very foolish to buy lotteries. Right? So here... God is working through this impossible process of lottery, of lot, and choosing Saul, who he's already chosen, many, many weeks ago, when he met up with Samuel the prophet. And that's why in verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? See, ultimately, Saul is not the people's choice. Saul is God's choice. And I think this teaches us a very important thing about God. Okay, God didn't rig the lottery. Okay? God controlled the lottery just like He controls everything in life. So here we see that the God that Israel worship and the God that we worship is a really big God. He is sovereign. He is in control of all events. He has dominion over the whole world. And He shows it here by controlling the lottery and also in bringing Samuel and Saul together in the last chapter before. And that's why in the, the New Testament, okay, up here, and in the book of Proverbs, Jesus says about God, are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Not even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And in Proverbs chapter 16, it says, In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So God is a powerful God who controls all things. But not only is He a powerful God who controls all things, we see the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, isn't it? Because here the people are committing a sin 
They're rebelling against God. They're turning against God. They're biting his hand, but he still graciously gives them a king. Now, I was reading this book. Uh, actually, I've just started reading this book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, right? My, my problem is I'm always thinking slow, so I want to think fast, okay? So, in this book, he, uh, the, the author is a psychologist, and he's, he's, he's been researching all sorts of different group dynamics. And he was saying that he was looking at uh, these Navy SEALs in America, these elite forces where they were looking at uh, different sorts of personalities. And he said that he noticed that whenever they had a, a group exercise, let's say they had to do something, right? Climb over this thing, take this position. Uh, all the Navy SEALs, they're all very strong personalities, who come together and they say, okay, I, I propose this, I propose this, let's do it this way. But he realized that uh, obviously only one idea can be implemented. But the people whose ideas were shot down tended to react in similar ways. They would pout, they would sulk. Okay, these are grown men, right? They're sulking, okay? They would withdraw their effort and they wouldn't put in 100% behind somebody else's idea. Now, we can be like that, right? We are, when we are rejected, when uh, like my dog Vader you know, doesn't reciprocate love, we feel rejected, so okay, we, 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 we do not respond back with love. But isn't God amazing? Because He is different. The people reject God. They sin against God. But He still is gracious. He is still merciful. He is still loving. And He gives them a king. Which is what they were asking for before. Now, I think this is a really important lesson for us. Because one of the saddest things I think that I've seen as a pastor is uh, when you speak to people who are not Christians or even when you speak to people who are Christians, they will say, God has given up on me. I've sinned too much. I've done too many bad things. You know, I've fallen again. God will never accept me again. But God's character is always the same, isn't it? He is always gracious and merciful and loving. If you come back to Him, He will accept you. And here we see God's character, even though the, the whole nation is rebelling against God. God has warned them and they're still rebelling. God still graciously and mercifully provides them a king. In the New Testament, uh, we see the same idea, right? The next slide. Uh, when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem where he knows that they will crucify him, look at his attitude to um, Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then when Jesus actually dies, in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, when does Jesus die? Jesus dies when his people were sinners, were sinners against him. So in Romans, chapter 5, verse 6, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the, not the godly, but the ungodly, those who are rebelling against him. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God, is, God doesn't die because we deserve it. God doesn't die for us because, send Jesus to die for us because we are good people. But no, he dies for us while we are still sinners. And um, in 2 Timothy, it says, Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, 
we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. See, even if we are faithless towards God, God will still be faithful to his character and keep loving. Right? The choice is still ours to turn away from God, but God's hand is always open towards us. Again, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Remember when the son ran off and sinned against God, he demanded his inheritance and went off to a far country. When he came back, what did the father do? While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. So today, if you are in church and you feel far away from God, you feel that you've turned your back against him, and you feel that there is no way God will ever take you back again. That your sins are so great or so persistent that somehow your relationship will never be right with God. Then you need to change your mind, isn't it? Because the problem is not with God, but your understanding of God. Because God is always a God of grace and of mercy and His arms are always open towards you. You can treat Him like Vader treated me, but He will still keep His arms open before you. He will still accept you. He will still show you grace just as he showed his people grace then. But, if you look at verse 25, you come back with me to the Bible, you will see that God actually doesn't give them a king exactly like what they were asking for. So, in verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on the scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. Now, the people wanted a king, if you recall, I hope your memory is still working. If not, you need to read this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, right? The people wanted a king like the nations, who would be like free to make all his own laws and all his own rules and uh, build up a big army. But here, this king that God chose for the people would not be a king like the nations. Uh, he, would, he would operate basically under a written constitution. He was a constitutional king. Uh, it would regulate the regulations, the manner, how he would operate his kingship. Now, we don't know exactly what rules and regulations uh, Samuel explained or wrote down. Probably very similar to Deuteronomy chapter 17. All right, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17 before, it's up here. All right, so remember, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time going through it, but uh, remember that this king was not to have a huge army, this king was not to have many wives. Uh, this king, next slide, was not to have um, much wealth. But most importantly, this king was to, to be a king under God, not above God or equal to God. This king was to be under the law. He was to obey the law, study the law, exercise the law, implement the law. He was not to make his own laws, but he was to live under God's law and to apply God's law to the people in his kingdom. So that's the sort of king that God finally gave his people. The people wanted a king, a king like the nations, but God gave them a king which would be the king that God wanted him to be. Now if you look at the last part of chapter 10, Saul then went home to his house in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silence. Now it's a very strange way to end this chapter. Because 
we know that Paul, sorry, not Saul, Saul was a very impressive character. And he was taller than everybody else, right? He was this NBA player, but they didn't play basketball then. Okay, he was big, physically very impressive. But yet, some people, some wicked people, it says there, and the word wicked here is the same word as what was uh, describing Eli's sons. They were wicked men, right? Worthless men. So they were evil. They despised uh, this king that God had given them. King Saul. Why did they despise Saul? Well, maybe it's because he was hiding in the baggage, right? He was hiding in the, with all the baggage and, the, and all the, 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 the junk that they brought them when they came to Mizpah. And why was he hiding? Because, remember, the king was the king to lead them out militarily against their enemies. So, maybe, maybe uh, Saul was a scaredy cat. Maybe he was scared. He didn't feel up to leading the nation militarily. Some other people say that uh, maybe they didn't like, they despised Saul as king because they didn't like the king that God had given them. Because it was not like a king like all the nations, a military king, but a king under God. But whatever reason why they despised uh, Saul, chapter 10 ends with a very important question. And this question actually helps us understand what happens in chapter 11. Because what's the question? How can this fellow save us? That is the question that is put to us, or to the reader, or even to the audience. At the end of chapter 10, can Saul save Israel, God's people, militarily. Is he a good general? Is he a good fighter? Because that question is very relevant because in chapter 11, soon we're introduced to this character called Nahash the Ammonite. And this guy Nahash the Ammonite, he attacks and besieges Jabesh Gilead. Now, uh, if you look at this map, okay, um, okay, that's the map of Israel. So we're going to uh, focus on this area, okay? So, okay, this is the focus area. Now, in the earlier parts of uh, 1 Samuel, remember where the enemies were? The Philistines, and they all live down here. Remember Gaza, Ashkelon, Akron? That was where the Philistines were, were living. Okay, that's their neighborhood. And remember, they were attacking Israel this way. They were, they were fighting Gibeon. You remember all this area? This is where all the fighting took place. But now, there is a new enemy. Not the Philistines, but the Ammonites. Okay, you, you must sort of understand they're not the same people, they're different, right? It's like saying Indonesia and Thailand, okay? Maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, okay. Okay, there's Jabesh Gilead is up there, right? So the Ammonites come in from the north, okay? And they're attacking from the north. So here, uh, Jabesh Gilead, the people there, they're being attacked by the Ammonites. And what do they do? They call for Saul as king and Saul rescues them? No, isn't it? The surprising thing that the people of Jabesh Gilead do is they say to Nahash, we will make a treaty with you and we will be subject to you. Isn't that amazing? Because they just want appointed a king and they should be subject to King Saul. But now they say, no, 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 no. No, long, no more long live King Saul. We will be subject to King Nahash. Very stunning, isn't it? And what does Nahash do? Now, Nahash is not abiding by the United Nations Treaty for War or whatever. He says, okay, I'll be your king, but there's one condition. You must take out 
every man must take out their right eye. Now, uh, why is that? Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Keith got married. You know Keith and Sarah got married, and we went to play paintball. It's quite an interesting game. Okay, appeals to the the men around us. I can't imagine many women playing it. But anyway, I, I imagine if you close your right eye, it would be really hard to shoot and to win at paintball. Uh, I mean, if my side could use their both eyes and the other side could only use their left, I think it would win very easily, right? And I think it's the same thing in those days. If you pluck out your right eye, you can't use your sword hand, you can't shoot an arrow. If you have a shield, your shield will be blocking your left eye. So effectively, there is no military fighting force anymore with people who are blind in the right eye. But look at what it says there in verse 2. The real reason why Nahash the Ammonite wants them to pluck out their right eye is so that he would bring disgrace on all Israel. And he is so confident of his victory that he allows seven days for the people of Jabez Gilead to send for help. And they don't send to King Saul for help. They just sort of send messages everywhere. And the surprising thing is when the messenger reaches Saul's home, Gabir, what do the people do? They don't go to Saul and say, Hey, king, your time has come, right? They start crying. And what is Saul doing? He's gardening. Right? King Saul, the gardener. So when the question is asked at the end of chapter 10, Can this fellow save us? Maybe... There's actually merit to that question, isn't it? Because here King Saul is seen as a baggage-hiding nobody, a Brad Pitt wannabe, right? This country bumpkin who's back in the fields after being appointed king. How can this king, humanly speaking, save Israel? And that's why verse 6 is the key to understanding this whole passage, isn't it? Because Saul by himself, seems like such a weak character. So in verse 6, it says, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. Now, what makes a difference here? It is not Saul. Okay, I don't know about your... If you use ESV, <coughs> whether you have a heading for chapter 11, my heading in NRV says, Saul rescues the city of Jabesh. Okay, if you have that in your Bible, can you please cross that out? But if it's a church Bible, don't, okay? Because Saul didn't rescue the city of Jabesh. It was God who rescued the city of Jabesh. Because when it says here, the power of the Spirit came upon him, it is the same word which is used three times only in the Bible, which is where the power came on Samson. And we all know that in the Bible, Samson was always known for his great strength, isn't it? Fighting. So if you see up here, three times in uh, the book of uh, Judges, it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson with power. And each time it is used for warfare. So, God gives Saul the power of his spirit, which enables him to save the people of Jabesh. But more than that, if you look at the verse 6, after the power of uh, the spirit of the God came upon him power, 
He burned with anger. Now, the anger, I, I think, is associated with the spirit. Uh, now, the, you know, you might start thinking, well, how come he's so angry, right? Is it sort of the road rage anger that, uh, that I experience when I'm driving on the road? So when I really get angry with that guy who cut me off, it's because the spirit of God came upon me, right? No. He burned with anger because he had the righteous anger for God's people. He really cared for God's honor. So a pastor shared this true story of how a woman in his congregation had been abused sexually by a relative. And after she was married, many, many, many years later, she shared with her husband what had happened. And her husband only shrugged his shoulders. And this woman was really upset because she came to complain to the pastor and said, you know, if only my husband had been angry on my behalf, that he felt angry at what happened to me, angry for my honor and for me. And that's the anger that uh, Saul feels when he has God's spirit. He feels angry that God's people are threatened. He feels angry that God is about to be dishonored. So, he moves to bring the whole nation together to fight. So he's empowered by the Spirit, but not just that, the people are also empowered because it says there in verse uh, 7, the terror of the Lord, not the terror of Saul or the terror of uh, uh, Samuel, fell on the people. The terror of the Lord fell on the people. And they went and fought, and obviously you know the battle was a foregone conclusion, and they won. They totally trashed Ammonites. Now the last part, is a, it's a very important part because after the battle, it says there in verse 12, the people then said to Samuel, after all this great victory, they said, where's the champagne? No, they didn't say that. They said, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us and we will put them to death. That's really strange again, isn't it? Imagine you won this great victory. They should have been celebrating, having a great time, but what are they doing instead? They're playing the blame game. Right? They're saying, who? Who was it? Who were those wicked men who doubted Saul, our heroes? But actually, when you look at uh, the whole narrative, the whole story, they should be pointing at themselves because it seems that before the Spirit of God came on Saul, everyone was doubting Saul. Everyone seemed to be uh, despising Saul. But Saul himself is... Uh, not like that. Saul says, No one should be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. So Saul does the right thing. He recognizes that he is not the one who, who brought this great victory, but God is the one who brought this great victory. So then in verse 14, they go to Gilgal. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. And they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul. And all the Israelites held a great celebration. Now why would they need to do this again? They already had a, a coronation ceremony not too long ago. Now I think that what's happening here is that what many commentators say is it's not really a, a coronation ceremony, but it's more like a, a covenant renewal ceremony where they renew their allegiance to God, they renew their submission to Yahweh uh, by recognizing his king. Because a few things are very important here. First of all, they go to Gilgal. Okay, uh, the map again? Sorry, I, I think I'm not sure I'll put the map on. Is the map up here? Okay, you've got to reverse it a bit. Yeah. Oh no, you can just reverse it there. Yeah, okay. 
Okay, uh, the big the big map. One more, I think. Okay, that's it. So Gilgal is up there. Uh, where's Gilgal? Oh, there it is. Okay, here, right? See, this is the river. Right, the River Jordan. Why did they go to Gilgal? Uh, Gilgal was the very first place where they entered the Promised Land. They had this great ceremony there because God had again done a miracle and brought them across the river when the river was swollen and, and, and you know, flowing full force. God stopped the river like He did when they escaped from uh, Egypt and He brought them across and they had this great ceremony because God had done the impossible. So here again they go to Gilgal to remember that God had done the impossible and saved them. And here, again, as they crown uh, Saul in the presence of the Lord, it says, they also have fellowship offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, what is a fellowship offering or a peace offering? It is where you are basically making peace with God. You are now have a right relationship with God. It represents a, a, a communion with God. So what's happening here is that we begin... Uh, the story in chapter 10 verse 17 where the people are asking for a king with the wrong motives and the wrong type of king. And it ends the story where the people actually renew their allegiance to the king that God has put over them the right, with the right motives and the right type of king. Now I think this is so important for us, isn't it? Because as we come here today, we can also despise God and the king that he's put over us. I don't know whether you're like that in your life. Maybe... In your own life, if you examine it and reflect on it, do you despise God's rule or Jesus' rule in your life? Uh, do you despise the way that He wants you to do things? Are you living to please Him? Are you um, living your life where every waking moment is given over into submission to Him? All your dreams and all your hopes are bound up in Him? Or are you like uh, you're treating God like my dog? Uh, Beta treated me. Right, I'm always psychologically scarred now. Right, right. Do we treat God like you know? Yes, God, you've done all these great things for me, but you know, I'm cold towards God. I'm sort of rebellious against God. I'm very sort of hard-hearted against God. If that's the case, then maybe you need to do like what the Israelites. You need to renew your allegiance towards God. You need to renew your allegiance towards Jesus. Because God has always got His hands and His arms open to accept you back. He's a powerful God. He's a God of grace and mercy. But if we choose to turn away from Him, well, that's our choice, and He will let us go. But if, he want, we, if we want to come back to Him, He is always waiting there for us. So today, I think, it's a great challenge for all of us to examine ourselves and to ask ourselves where we stand before God. Because the problem is not with God's relationship with us. The problem is our relationship with God. Uh, are we treating God right and have we come back to Him? Do we need to renew our allegiance to Him? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to thank you for who you are, that you are a powerful God, that even in such mundane and everyday matters, you have full control. Uh, that uh, you are so big, that there is nothing which is outside your dominion. We also want to thank you for you are a gracious and merciful God and your arms are always open towards us. That even in our sin and rebellion, you sent Jesus to die for us. Uh, Jesus had a great attitude of love towards us. That even if we are faithless, you are faithful. And we pray for each and every one of us here 
that we will always be turning back to you and if we have lost our allegiance to you, if we have lost our love for you, that you will help us to turn back to you so that we may be right and have a good relationship with you. And dear Father, we truly want to commit each and every one of us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.